Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 2, Episode 10, 1909 in England, War and Peace. This is Part 2 of our episode covering the 1909 Tour of England. Part 1 was released last week and covers the first two tests of the five-test series. We resume with the series locked at one win apiece. With the third test taking place at Leeds in Yorkshire, the Australians headed north for their next series of matches. All three of their first-class matches ended in rain-affected draws. After a winning result in the previous tests, the Australians made no changes to their lineup. After being criticised for making five changes the previous test, the English selectors went one better by making six for the third test. Fry was available again, and he took the place of Hayward, whose knee was too injured to play. Jones was also considered to be unfit to play. The selectors left out the two best performers in the previous test in Ralph and King, whilst the unperforming Gunn and Hay were also dropped. Into their spots came Jessup, Rhodes and Brearley, making a belated appearance after most thought he should have played in the second test. Jack Sharp, a right-handed batsman from Surrey, made his debut, whilst at the last minute Barnes was selected, preferred over Ralph. The day previous to the test had been sunny, and whilst the first morning was overcast, Noble chose to bat when he won the toss for the third consecutive time. McAllister and Gregory opened, whilst Hurst and Barnes commenced the bowling. It didn't take long for the first wicket to fall, with Hurst trapping McAllister in front of his stumps for three. This brought the century maker from the Lord's Test Ransford to the crease. The Australians batted cautiously, with Gregory bringing up his 2,000 test run in the process, although there was little threat from the wicket. The bowlers kept tight lines, but there was almost no lateral movement or uneven bounce. That said, through watchful play, the score slowly moved to 29 after the first hour of play. The opening bowlers were replaced with Brearley and Rhodes, but this allowed for more run scoring, as particularly Brearley found it difficult to maintain his line in length. Whilst attempting to stop a ball, Jessup strained his back. This injury was so bad, it not only meant he could take no further part in the test, it also meant he did not play again for the rest of the season. This cost McLaren both a useful bowling option and a dangerous batter. The two bats were able to take the score into the 80s before Ransford attempted a quick single as a run out by Tildesley for 45. Noble was in next and soon after lunch was taken with the Australians at 2 for 88. Following lunch, the score moved to 100 before Noble was bowled off his pads by Hurst for 3. Four runs later, Gregory was also out, playing outside the line to a straight run from Barnes to be out bowled. He departed for 46, with the Australians now at 4 for 104. Armstrong and Bardsley combined, but the bowling was now a lot tighter and the batsmen spent most of their time playing defensive shots. They managed to put on 36 runs before Armstrong swung widely at Brearley and was caught behind for 21. Trumper then joined Bardsley. The two took the score past 150 before Bardsley hit his own wicket off Rhodes. This sparked a collapse. McCartney, Cotter and Carter all fell for single figures to the bowling of Rhodes, who took 4 for 7 in this spell, starting with Bardsley's wicket. This left Trumper with only Labour, who joined him at 9 for 171. Trumper then struck Rhodes for four consecutive boundaries, two off full balls before pulling two long hops to the rope. However, this was the final run scored for the Australians, as Labour was out to Brearley for a duck in the next over. Trumbull was left not out 27, in what was considered a well under par total of 188. Rhodes was a standout bowler with 4 for 38, whilst Hurst and Brearley both claimed two wickets. England started their innings with Fry and Hobbs at the crease. Fry did not last long, struggling to hit the ball before being trapped in front by Cotter for one. Tilsey joined Hobbs, and the two built the score onto 31. At this point, Hobbs appeared to hit his wicket off McCartney. However, the umpire judged that as he had finished his shot before dislodging the bail with his foot, it wouldn't count as a wicket. This didn't impact the Australians though, as two balls later McCartney thoroughly bowled Hobbs for 12. 
The debutant Sharp came to the crease and in partnership with Tildesley pushed the English score along. Bowling changes were made after the score passed 50, but there's little effect as the two brought up a half-century partnership just for four stumps, going to the end of the day at 2 for 88, trailing only by 100. England were in a strong position going into day two. Tildesley and Sharp, who were on 38 and 30 respectively overnight, continued on in the same fashion as the previous evening, building the score and taking it past 100. No bowlers other than Armstrong seemed to trouble them. Both batsmen passed 50 and brought up their 100 partnership, with an English first innings lead seeming all but assured. However, at this point, Noble swung McCartney around to the Kirkstall end and changed the game. McCartney first had Tildesley caught by Armstrong for 55, having shared a 106-run stand with Sharp. McLaren came in at 3 for 137, but nine runs later, the other set batsman in Sharp also departed via an excellent stumping by Carter off McCartney. From this point, the English collapsed, with the side unable to develop any partnerships beyond 12 runs. McLaren could only match 17 before he was bowled by McCartney, whilst Rhodes scored a painful 12 before Labour had him caught behind. The remaining batsmen were paralysed, not willing to take any scoring opportunities. McCartney took advantage of the timidness and worked each of them over, with each of the last three wickets being bowled by his left armers. The English, who had only been 42 runs short of the Australians at 3 for 146, lost their last six wickets for 36 runs. With Jessup unable to bat, the English innings ended on 182, six runs short of the Australian score. McCartney was the star, his slow left armers claiming seven wickets for 58 runs, including a spell of 6-31 on day two. Taking a surprising lead into their second innings, the Australians got off to a horrible start, with Gregory clean bowled by a Hurst in swinger first ball. Ransford replaced him, but soon after the other opener fell, with McAllister playing a feeble shot that was caught by Sharp off Barnes. At 2 for 14, Armstrong joined Ransford and the two played slow cricket in trying to prevent a collapse, neglecting to take many scoring opportunities presented. However, when McLaren switched to Brealey and Rhodes, the runs began to come more freely. The score moved past 50 before McLaren returned to Barnes and was instantly rewarded, trapping Ransford LBW for 24. Noble then joined Armstrong and the two batted grimly, holding out for 45 minutes until T was taken, having moved the score on to 103 at the break. Following T, the two batsmen resumed in the same style, taking the total to 118 before Barnes struck, having Noble caught by Rhodes for 31. The pitch was now becoming more difficult and Rhodes struck soon after, clean bowling Armstrong for 45. The next two batsmen could each only manage two runs before they were dismissed, with Trumper bowled and Bardsley caught behind, both off Barnes. This left the Australians at 7 for 127, with a lead of only 133. However, at this point, McCartney dug in whilst Cotter played attacking strokes. The latter raced to 19 and took the score to 150 before he was caught at slip-off roads. Carter then joined McCartney and played in a similar fashion to Cotter, bringing up quick runs and taking his own score to 22 at stumps. McCartney, having already lasted an hour, was resolute on 7, the Australians ending day 2 at 8 for 175, a lead of 181. Day 3 started with two boundaries to Carter, who was out shortly after, caught behind off Barnes to 30. Labour came to the crease to join McCartney. The score moved on to 190 before Labour edged Barnes to slip. However, McLaren dropped a difficult one-handed catch. This allowed the Australians to take their total to 207 before McCartney was last out, bowled by Brealey. He'd spent close on two hours compiling 18 runs, whilst Labour was left 13 not out. Barnes was the pick of the bowlers, claiming 6-63, whilst Rhodes took two. On a pitch that wasn't playing any tricks now, the English target of 214 was seen as a gettable one. Fry and Hobbs opened the batting. Fry was looking comfortable early, but when he reached seven, he played a ball from Cotter into his leg and then onto the stumps. He was replaced by Tildesley, but he could only manage seven before striking a ball hard back at McCartney, who took an excellent catch. This left the English at 2 for 26. Sharp then combined with Hobbs to build the English total, 
Hobbs was doing most of the scoring, but never looked comfortable, particularly against the pace of Cotter. However, they were able to make it to lunch without further loss, with the score at 56. After lunch, though, the English innings fell apart. Hobbs was out with the score at 60, a ball from Cotter just grazing his off stump. He was dismissed for 30. New batsman McLaren took a single, but then Sharp was also bowled in the same over, pulling a long hop onto his stumps. In the following over without addition to the score, McLaren attempted to whip a ball from McCartney into the onside, but caught the leading edge and ballooned to Cotter at point. The English had now lost three wickets for one run to be 5 for 61. With Jessup unavailable, this left only four wickets. Rhodes and Lilly held out for a while, but when Rhodes became McCartney's 10th victim of the match, the rest of the side collapsed to be all out for 87. Cotter had done the damage, finishing with 5 wickets of 38 runs, whilst McCartney had the standout performance in the game, adding 4 wickets to go with his 7 in the first innings, finishing with 11 for 85. The win for Australia by 126 runs put them 2-1 up in the Ashes, a fine feat given how poorly they started the series, with 2 matches to play. The Australians' good form continued across the 6 first-class matches played between the 3rd and 4th tests. Noble and Bardsley scored centuries against Warwickshire, whilst O'Connor took 10 wickets for the match as the locals held on to a draw after following on. Innings wins followed against Worcestershire and Gloucestershire, Ramsford scoring a century against Worcester, whilst Bardsley scored his second double century of the tour against Gloucestershire. Rain-affected draws against Surrey and Yorkshire came next, before Derbyshire was defeated by 10 wickets, with Trumper scoring a century and O'Connor claiming another 10-wicket haul. Despite O'Connor's impressive form, the only change for Australia for the fourth test in Manchester was either batting, with Hopkins coming in for McAllister. Once again, the English made multiple changes. Jessup was already out after his injury in the third test. Fry's form didn't warrant selection, whilst Hobbs had injured his hand in a county game and was unavailable. Their places were taken by the successful English captain on the 0304 tour Plum Warner, who was playing his first test in England, Reg Spooner, who had last played in the 1905 series, and Kenneth Hutchings, who had played on the previous tour. Finally, Blythe made himself available for the first time since the first test, and he took the place of Brearley, with the wet pitch conditions expected to favour his left arm spin. For the fourth time this series, Noble won the toss. With rain falling heavily the previous day, the wicket was soft. Noble chose to bat, hoping the pitch would be easiest bat on at its wettest and become more difficult across the day as it dried out. He opened with Bardsley and Gregory, whilst McLaren commenced the attack with Hurst and Barnes. The score moved on sedately to 13, before Barnes bowled Bardsley for 9 with a good length ball. Ramsey came in at number 3, could only manage 4 before he was trapped LBW by Barnes. The Australians were now 2 for 21. Noble and Gregory took the score on to 32, before the first bowling change was made, with Blythe replacing Hurst. The Australians looked to up the scoring, but this brought about their downfall when Gregory, who had played a number of good pull shots, attempted a wild stroke and was clean bowled by Blythe at 21. Trumper could only manage two before he was caught off Barnes playing a reckless shot. The Australians were now 4 for 48 as Armstrong joined Noble. The two looked to hold out until lunch, but just before the break, Noble became the fifth wicket to fall, bowled by Blythe for 17. The Australians limped their way to 5 for 61 at the break. Things didn't improve immediately for the Australians after lunch. Hopkins only lasted 10 balls before he was bowled by Blythe for three. Armstrong was labouring, but also looked the most comfortable of the Australians. McCartney scratched around for five before he was also bowled, this time by Barnes. The Australians were now 7 for 88 and in danger of not making three figures. However, the bowlers began to tire and the lower order took advantage with some big hitting. Cotter hit 17 of only 13 balls, including a massive hit off Blythe back over his head and out of the ground, before he was caught on the boundary. This took the Australians past 100. Carter made a run a minute at 13, and last man Labour added 11 with two fours, but he was the final wicket. Armstrong had held out at the other end, compiling 32 runs in 100 minutes of batting, 
helping take the Australians to 147. Barnes and Blythe had shared the wickets, taking five each. The English innings commenced at a quarter to four. Spooner and Warner opened, whilst Noble and McCartney took up the attack for the Australians. On the drying pitch, both batsmen played watchful innings. Most spectators felt the batsmen were being too negative, denying themselves scoring opportunities and allowing the bowls to build easy pressure. They were together for 50 minutes, only compiling 24 runs, before Warner was clean bowled by McCartney for nine. Tildesley joined Spooner, but little effort was made to raise the scoring rate. McCartney and Noble were switched for Cotter and Laver, with Cotter generating the breakthrough, having Spooner mistiming a quick one and hitting a catch back to the bowler. England now moved to 2-39 at this point. From here, Laver took over the game with an extraordinary spell of bowling. Newman Sharp was caught at slip by Armstrong for three, whilst Rhodes could only manage five before he was caught by the wicketkeeper. Tildesley followed soon after for 15 when he was caught at slip, whilst Hutchings, after having bowled off a no ball, was then clean bowled by illegal delivery. The English were now 6-72, with Laver having taken the last four wickets to fall. McLaren and Lilly looked to resurrect the innings and managed to put on 27 runs, but when Laver trapped the English captain LBW for 16, the English innings fell apart. The final three batsmen could only compile two runs between them as Laver ran through them all. Lilly managed to get away some big hits, but was left not out as the English innings ended on 119. Laver had bowled 18.2 overs, seven of which were maidens, and taken eight for 31. This was the best ever bowling in an innings by an Australian bowler, beating Albert Trott's 8 for 43 back in 1895, and was only behind eight-wicker hauls by English bowlers Lohman and Briggs against South Africa in the 1890s as the best figures of all time. He maintained a tight line and length throughout, and was assisted by a strong breeze, but the English didn't help themselves with some poor stroke making. This brought an end to the proceedings for the day, with the Australians taking a 28-run lead into their second innings. After a rare rain-free night, play was able to start on time on day two. Gregory and Bardsley again opened for the Australians, whilst the first inning wicket-takers of Barnes and Blythe commenced for England. Scoring was slow, with Gregory in for almost half an hour in compiling five before he was clean bowled by Hurst, who had replaced Barnes. McCartney came in at number three with a score at one for 16, and the scoring increased a little, but only 41 runs had been made when the first hour of complay was completed. The scoring rate then began to increase, with both batsmen striking boundaries and looking to take the lead past 100. They put on 61 runs before Bardsley was caught at slip by McLaren off Blythe the 35. To add insult to injury, immediately after the wicket fell, rain began to fall, which stuck around for the rest of the day and ended play early. McCarthy moved to 33 at the close, whilst his trains now on 2 for 77, giving them a lead of 105 going into the final day. Unless the English could bowl the Australians out quickly, Australia would most likely have to declare to set up a chance of a result in the game. Plato was delayed for 45 minutes due to overnight rain. Noble joined the non-out McCartney at the crease. The bowling was not tight, and this allowed the batsmen to play some big shots into the outfield, although due to the rain the field was slow and many powerful shots didn't reach the boundary. The partnership took the score past 100 before Noble was bowled by a Blythe Yorker for 13. Armstrong then joined McCartney. McLaren brought Rhodes on, and soon after McCartney brought up his half-century, the first of the game. He was out shortly after though, bowled by Rhodes for 51 with seven boundaries. Trumper joined Armstrong at 4 for 126. The two started to push the scoring rate to set up a declaration, although Armstrong was dismissed, trapped LBW by Rhodes for 30. Ramsey then arrived at the crease and was able, in partnership with Trumper, to take the score on to 586 at lunch, a lead of 214. Many expected Noble to declare to try and force a result. However, with a draw in this test meaning Australia would at the very least retain the ashes, Noble was in no mood to be generous. Ramsey and Trumper continued on after lunch. With English bowling flagging, the two batsmen scored freely with both hitting big sixes into the stands.
They added a further 51 runs post-lunch before they were separated, when Trump was caught on the boundary off roads of 48. The Australians were now 6 of 237, and still no declaration came. Hopkins and Cotter were out for single-figure scores, whilst Ramsford brought up his half-century in partnership with Carter. When Carter was LBW to Barnes for a quick-fire 12, Noble declared the innings closed. Ramsford was 54 not out from the final Australian total of 9 declared for 279. Rose was the pick of the bowlers, with 5 for 83. But overall, English bowling was considered lacklustre. The English were set the impossible task of chasing 308 runs in two and a half hours. With the pitch now fairly benign, the challenge came down to the patience of the English batsmen to see out the day. Spooner and Warner set about their task calmly, repelling all attempts to dismiss them. After his first inning heroics, Laver was used extensively, but did not have the same impact. The Opens were able to stay together for almost 90 minutes, compiling 78 runs, before Warner was bowled by Hopkins for 25. Having taken the English to within an hour of the close, the match was clearly headed for a draw. Two more wickets fell, with Tilsley making 11 before being bowled by Hopkins, while Spooner made 58 before Laver rattled his stumps. With Sharp and Rhodes at the crease, the match was called off at 6.15, with the English ending at 3 for 108. This draw meant that, with a series at 2-1, the worst the Australians could do with only one test remaining was a drawn series, meaning they had retained the Ashes. Once again, this match was the final time the Australians would face a couple of long-term foes, this time in Tildesley and Hurst. Much like Hayward, Tildesley had been a consistent opponent for the Australians going back to the previous century. His performance on the 0304 tour, where he scored 97 on a sticky wicket in Melbourne, was labelled by his captain as one of the best innings he had ever seen, whilst he also scored two centuries in the English win in the 1905 Ashes. He would continue playing for Lancashire until 1923, passing away at the age of 57 seven years long. His brother would also play for England after the war, whilst his great-great-nephew would be a famous Ashes combatant where, 100 years after Tilsley's excellent 1905 series, he would captain the English to their famous 2005 series win. Hurst had always played key roles with both bat and ball, but never quite reproduced his county form for Yorkshire. His ability to take England home in the famous Oval Test of 1902, after Jessup's great innings, was always fondly remembered. He featured for Yorkshire all the way to 1929 when he was 58 years old, passing away at the age of 83 in 1954. The Australians had time for two first-class matches before the final test of the Oval, drawing against the combined Yorkshire and Lancashire side before beating Lancashire by 47 runs. The Australians kept the same 11 that they had at Old Trafford. Once again, the English made many changes. Tildesley and Hurst were out, along with Warner and Blythe. Despite Blythe having taken 18 wickets in his only two matches this series, he was left out as it was considered that the pitch was too hard for him to be effective. He was replaced by Kent medium-fast bowler Douglas Carr, making his debut. Also making his debut was Kent left-handed all-rounder Frank Woolley. Ernie Hayes, a leg-spinning all-rounder, will be playing his first test against Australia, having played three on the tour of South Africa in 1905-06, whilst Fry was once again brought back into the side. For the second time in three Asher series, the captain won all five tosses. Successful again, Noble chose to bat on the hottest day of the series. The blazing sunshine had made the pitch good for batting as Bardsley and Gregory opened the innings. However, they are unable to take advantage of the conditions. Whilst Bardsley looked comfortable early, debutant Carr bowled Gregory for one. Noble replaced him, but soon after went on 19, Bardsley edged behind off Barnes. However, Lilly dropped a fairly simple chance. This didn't seem to matter too much, as soon after Noble was trapped LBW by a Carr off-cutter, dismissing him for two. Armstrong joined Bardsley at two for 27. Things settled down for a while, the two able to take the score past 50, but at 55 Armstrong fell in the same fashion as Noble for 15, with Carr claiming his third wicket. When Ramsford was clean bowled by Barnes with a ball that seemed to pick up pace off the pitch for three, the Australians were in a difficult position at 4 for 58. 
However, with the arrival of Trumper, the match shifted. The two batsmen were able to take advantage of the dead pitch, and McLaren's reluctance to switch away from Carr, even when the 37-year-old had been bowling for over an hour. Both batsmen collared the bowling, sending Carr in particular to all parts of the ground. Bardsley was able to go past 50, his first of the Test Series, whilst Trumper was reliving his glory days of 1899 and 1902. The Australians were going at over a run a minute. Carr was eventually switched off after bowling for an hour and a half, but his replacements provided little relief for the English. The Australians took their total past 100. Trumper, moving to 48, was then dropped by Barnes at mid-off shortly after lunch. He brought up his own half-century, whilst the century stand was raised. Eventually, having made 73, Trumper was dismissed, caught by Rhodes off Barnes. Other than the one drop, it had been a chanceless innings, and he shared a 118-run stand with Bardsley. Joined by McCartney, Bardsley was then dropped again when on 70, with English now completely demoralised. The scoring continued at the same rate it had in the previous partnership, with Bardsley especially batting more quickly now. A sign of how much the English were flagging was when the English attempted to run out Bardsley going for a second run, only for a further four overthrows to be added. Eventually, Bardsley brought up his century, his first in tests. The English could do little to stop him as the score went past 200. Bardsley would finally be out for 136, bowled by Sharp. He batted for close to four hours and hit 12 boundaries in his innings, sharing an 83-run stand with a McCartney. The rest of the Australian innings played out at a similar speed. Hopkins made quick time in composing 21 before he became Sharp's second victim. Cotter then Carter both fell for single-figure stores to the bowling of Carr. McCarthy then farmed the strike with last man Labour, bringing up his own half-century before he missed time to pull shot off Sharp and was caught for 50. The Australian innings ended on 325. Carr had claimed five wickets on debut, but had gone for 146 runs in doing so, going in over four and over, while Sharp finished with three wickets. The English had just over 40 minutes left to bat on the first day. Spooner and McLaren opened for the English, whilst Cotter and Armstrong started for the Australians. The score reached 15 before the first wicket fell, with Cotter clean bowling Spooner for 13 with a Yorker, giving the fast bowler his 50th test wicket. Rhodes joined McLaren, but McLaren became Cotter's second victim just before stumps when he was trapped LBW for 15. The day ended with Rhodes and Fry at the crease, with the English on 2 for 40, trailing by 285 runs. Another hot cloudless day attracted a mass of spectators to the second day's play. The English batsmen took advantage of the perfect batting conditions and began the day well. Fry especially scored freely, with classical drives on both sides of the wicket. Rhodes was more circumspect, but took advantage of anything straying onto his pads. No bowlers caused much in the way of difficulty as the two raised a 50 partnership and took the score past 100. When the total reached 107, Labour, who was arguably the most challenging of the bowlers, had to leave the field with a leg injury and took no further part in the match. Fry raised his first 50 of the series and looked to be set for a big score. However, when he reached 62, Rhodes, in trying to bring up his own 50, first called Fry through for a run, then sent him back. Fry was caught short of his ground and departed, having put on a 104-run partnership. Sharp joined Rhodes, who soon after brought up his half-century. The two were able to get through to lunch without being parted, although Sharp survived a close LBW appeal, with a score at 3 for 186. However, post-lunch, the Australians struck quickly. Rhodes was caught behind for 62 off Cotter. Woolley was then clean bowled by the Australian fast bowler, whilst Hayes was trapped LBW by Armstrong. The English lost 3 for 19 post-lunch to now sit at 6 for 206. Newman Hutching struggled with Cotter's pace at first, playing and missing and nearly being bowled multiple times. However, the fast bowler was eventually rotated off, and the two batsmen then started to flourish. The runs came thick and fast, although Rancis on the leg boundary stopped many fours. Sharp raised his own 50 and was able to force Noble to cycle through seven bowling options without success. The two batsmen were able to raise a century stand as T approached. Sharp reached 95 before he gave his first chance, a difficult caught behind opportunity. 
Hutchings then reached his half-century before Sharp brought up his maiden test ton. The two had taken the English into the lead at team, well positioned at 6 344. The English failed to make the most of their advantage though. The two set the batsmen departed soon after the break. First Sharp was dismissed, caught by Gregory off Hopkins for 105, made in just under three hours with 11 boundaries. Then Cotter had Hutchings caught for 59. Neither Barnes nor Carr troubled the scorers as the English lost 4 for 8 after the break to finish on 352, a lead of only 27. Cotter was a star for the Australians, his pace being of great value on the placid pitch, claiming 6 for 95, whilst Hopkins finished with two wickets. The Australians had just over an hour remaining to bat. Gregory and Bardsley opened the innings again, with Bardsley keen to build on his impressive form of the first innings. Warren Bardsley, known to many as Curly, was born on the 6th of December 1882 in Warren, New South Wales. The son of a teacher, the family eventually moved to Glebe in Sydney. Here, Warren started to develop his cricket skills, with one of his schoolmates being future New South Wales and Australian teammate Tibby Cotter. Performances for Glebe in grade cricket eventually attracted the attention of the New South Wales selectors and he first played for the state at the age of 21. It took until four years after his debut for him to put up his first performance of note, scoring 108 against the touring English. A serious man who neither drank, smoked or ate meat, Bardsley had his best season in 1908-09, scoring 430 runs at 71 with two centuries in the shield, leading to his selection for the 1909 tour. He had performed well in the tour matches, but had taken until the fifth test for him to demonstrate this form at the highest level. He was now about to make the most of this opportunity. Bardsley and Gregory took advantage of a bowling attack that could pose no threat, particularly as Carr was bowling poorly. The two were able to wipe off the English advantage with ease and were able to take the Australian score to 76 without loss at stumps, with Gregory on 35 and Bardsley 33. The third and final day was the hottest of the match. The bowling had improved from the previous evening, but Gregory and Bardsley continued on the same vein as before. Milestones arose, with the 100 coming up, whilst both batsmen made half-centuries. The next milestone was the Australian record for the first wicket, which was 135 by Trumper and Duff in 1902. Bardsley then started to motor towards his century, racing to three figures just before lunch. He became the first ever batsman to score a century in each innings of a test match, a remarkable feat given all the great batsmen who had come before him. After only an hour 15 at the crease, the Australian score had raised to 180 before Gregory was run out for 76. Noble joined Bardsley, but now the game began to drift. Noble showed no interest in pushing for a victory, scoring consistently but not striving for a declaration total, whilst Bardsley appeared tired after his colossal effort. The Australian score went past 200 and the two were able to stay together until the lunch break, with Noble to having just brought up his own half-century. Following the break, both set batsmen fell. Bardsley was first, trapped LBW by Barnes for 130, having batted for almost four hours and hitting 10 fours. Noble followed soon after, caught it slip for 55, giving Barnes his second wicket. Again though, with the draw guaranteeing the Australians the series win, Noble continued to let the Australians bat, despite time running out on the final day. Armstrong and Ransford, coming together with a score of 3 for 268, took the score to 294 before Armstrong was caught for 10 off Carr. Trumper added a quick 20, taking the total past 100 before he was stumped off Carr. McCartney came out, but soon after Noble finally declared. Ransford had C6 not out as the trains closed their innings at 5 for 339, setting a target of 313. Noble had only allowed the English around two hours to make this total. He was criticised in the press for his declaration with the Times calling it a farce and decrying the unwillingness of the Australian captain to give some hope to the English of success. But Noble's goal was winning the Test Series and he was about to do just that. The English only had time to face 33 overs. 
Spooner and Hayes fell cheaply, with one wicket each to Armstrong and McCartney, but Rhodes and Fry combined once again, putting on 61 runs. Rhodes hit his second 50 of the match before he was stumped off Armstrong, whilst Fry was 35 not out as the match ended with the English on 3 for 104. With draws in the final two tests, Australia had retained the Ashes with a 2-1 series result. The series win came down in part to some luck, with weather playing a key role in many of the matches. The batting in the test was not overly successful. Ransford averaged 59 in scoring 353 runs, whilst Bardsley's final test saw his average go up to 39.6, although prior to that game he was only averaging 17. The rest struggled to put up consistent results, although key innings were often vital in getting Australians just enough runs. The bowling was a lot more consistent. Cotter led the way with 17 wickets at 21, whilst McCartney with 16 and Armstrong and Labour with 14 each all played key roles in giving Noble the right option for any situation. Noble's captaincy in setting effective fields and the general superiority of the Australians as fielders also played its part. The English's bigger problem in the series was their inability to have a settled lineup. Whilst in 1905 England had used 19 players, nine of them played four or more tests. In this series, the English had used 25 players, with only five playing four or more matches. Most English batsmen had poor averages, and only Sharp in the final test scored a century. The bowling was better, with Blythe gaining 18 wickets at 13, and Barnes 17 at 20, but McLaren often didn't have the right option at hand. The lack of an out-and-out fast bowler in most tests was costly. Speaking of McLaren, this was his final series as a test cricketer. Debuting on the 1894-95 tour, he bonded with the premier batsman in the world. He had scored 1,931 runs in his 35 tests, only bettered for England by Hayward's 1,999, and scored 500s, tied for most for an Englishman with Stanley Jackson. His record as captain, though, was a polar opposite. In the 24 tests he'd captained across five Ashes series, he'd only won four and lost 11, and never successfully won the Ashes as captain. Whilst he was considered a deep thinker of the game, he often clashed with selectors and struggled to guess the best out of his players, like a Warner or Jackson had. His first-class career wound down soon after. He coached Lancashire for a short time after the First World War, eventually passing away at the age of 72 in 1944. This series also marked the end for another long-time combatant for the Australians with English wicketkeeper Dick Lilly. Debuting in 1896, Lilly would play 35 tests and finish with 70 catches and 22 stumpings. 29 dismissals better than the next best keeper since the beginning of test cricket in JJ Kelly. Lilly would retire in 1911 and pass away at the age of 63 in 1929. Following the final tests, the Australians still had 13 matches of the tour left to play, 11 of which were first class. The first four of these all ended in either high-scoring or rain-affected draws, whilst the fifth was a nail-biting one-wicket win over Sussex. Three more draws followed before the Australians lost to an invitational 11 put together by Lord Lonsborough, their first loss since the first test, with the Australians having gone over three months of the tour without tasting defeat. Two more draws followed by two non-first-class matches in Scotland ended the tour. Across the 39 first-class matches of the tour, including the tests, 22 had ended in draws and four were losses, whilst 13 victories were attained. The tour batting was dominated by two of the newcomers to England in Bardsley and Ransford. The only Australians to score centuries in the test matches were also the leading run scorers, scoring 2,072 and 1,736 runs respectively, with both reaching six centuries. Experienced hands Armstrong, Trumper and Noble also crossed the 1,000-run mark. With the bowling, Armstrong led the way with 113 wickets, the only Australian to take over 100 wickets and marking the second occasion where he had done the double of 1,000 runs and 100 wickets on tour after his 1905 series. O'Connor and Whitty, who both played little part in the Test Series, were the next best, with 77 and 75 wickets respectively. During the tour, McAllister had absented himself in July to attend a meeting at Lord's. He was joined as part of an Australian delegation by former New South Wales batsman Les Poydevin, 
The meeting featured representatives from both English and South African cricket. In order to better control competition between the three test nations, they established the Imperial Cricket Conference, the forerunner of today's International Cricket Council. Their first major decision was to establish a triangular contest that would take place between the three sides, with the first such competition to take place in England in 1912. McAllister was praised for his efforts in establishing the conference by the board upon his return, a move which would help establish the board's power as a major force in Australian cricket. McAllister was less successful in his other role as tour treasurer. He complained to the board that Labor, the tour manager, had kept key information from him, so much so that he was unable to produce accurate records. The tour had been a financial success, with the tests in London each attracting over 50,000 spectators. However, with the players not trusting the word of the board, Labor kept his notes secret. This allowed him to give him much more to the players by claiming higher expenses, which the board had agreed to cover, than they actually incurred. Labor offered to attend the board and offered to answer any questions about his receipts and expenditure, but the board did not take him up on this offer. The tour marked the end of a few test careers for the Australians as well. Firstly, Bert Hopkins, who had played 20 tests and gone on three English tours since his debut in 1901-02. His batting was never strong, only averaging 16 with a highest score of 43, but his bowling was useful, taking 26 wickets at 26. He continued in first-class cricket up to the First World War, passing away at the age of 56 in 1931. Popular Frank Labor's test career also ended after this tour. Labor had toured England three times, in 1899, 1905 and 1909, acting as manager on the last two. He was chosen as much for his management skills and support of players' rights as his skills as a cricketer, but still managed to produce two fine bowling performances, with 7 for 64 at Trent Bridge in 1905 and his 8 for 31 in 1909. He played shield cricket until the end of 1912, passing away seven years later at the age of 49. Finally, the biggest loss for the Australian team was that of their captain, Noble. Noble was only 37 at the time and a bachelor, meaning he had no family commitments that were preventing from continuing. However, the constant fights of the board had taken their toll. His relationship with the New South Wales representative, McElholm, had been particularly acrimonious, and he didn't trust administrators as a whole. He announced his retirement soon after his return to Australia, although he made a couple of appearances for New South Wales after the First World War. He was one of Australia's first great all-rounders, playing 42 tests, scoring 1,997 runs at 30, and taking 121 wickets at 25, and he was an outstanding captain, winning two of the three Asher series he led Australia in. Across his 15 tests as captain, he won eight matches and lost five. He would go on to work in banking and then dentistry, dying in 1940 at the age of 67. He was inducted into the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame in 2006 and the ICC Hall of Fame in 2021. Noble's loss was bigger as the defender of the players than as the player himself, however. Whilst the players had got their way in choices in management and captain for the 1909 tour, the board's influence continued to grow. With staunch player advocates such as Darling, Noble and Labor departing the scene, the defence of their rights was left to fewer people of the gravity required to challenge the board's power. The burden of both defending the players' rights and the Australian captaincy would soon pass into the hands of the man who had skipped the 1909 tour in Clem Hill, who, with support of players like Trumper and Armstrong, would have to take up the fight to prevent full control of cricket by the board. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.